Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 6,000 members worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 17th of January 2022 and this is episode 238. On today's Dispatches podcast, author Frances Wood talks about her recent book, Betrayed Ally, China and the Great War, that she wrote with Christopher Ardnander. This is published by Pen and Sword. Frances spoke to me over the interweb from her home in England. Frances, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in China and the Great War? Um, I, I suppose I, I when I was at school, I was quite good at languages. I mean, and my, I come from a very sort of linguistic family, but, um, and I wanted, I thought when I went to university to learn a language that was as different as possible. And I chose Chinese rather by chance actually, but I'm terribly glad that I did. Cause I think if I'd learned Arabic, it would be rather tragic. You'd be dealing always with difficult places where women are not very welcome. And at the time, this is a long time ago, late sixties, um, that was also to quite a large extent true of Japan. Um, women were very much second-class citizens. So I chose China. China was then just beginning the cultural revolution and sort of closing to the outside world. And it just did seem to me that language and studying China was a way, was a way into this mysterious culture. And I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, I've never, ever regretted um, learning Chinese as a lifelong thing. I mean, I still have to spend hours looking things up in dictionaries, but the language itself is just fascinating and the culture too. I just have found so many aspects of Chinese history fascinating that um, I've always wanted as well to to tell other people about them. So I've written quite a few books, but always with the idea of just introducing aspects of Chinese history and culture to people who are interested. And the World War question, um, I suppose that developed out of writing a book um, about the treaty ports in China, you know, in from the, the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century, sort of 1843 to 1943, there were foreign enclaves established throughout China where foreigners lived really um, amazingly privileged lives, um, protected from all sorts of things, um, and but, but within the Chinese context. And um, the book I wrote was called No Dogs and Not Many Chinese, referring to a, a sign that was supposed to exist in Shanghai saying that um, in the public parks, um, no Chinese were admitted and no dogs either. Um, and I, I wanted really to sort of suggest how um, foreigners lived in a way, you know, very separately from Chinese. But when I was writing that book, because it covers the period 1843 to 1943, it obviously includes the two world wars. And the effect of World War One on China, I did find particularly interesting. And I think I was talking about it to friends and, and, and realized nobody knew that in, in the First World War, China was our ally, actually joined the um, our side, if you like, um, just before the Americans. So this came as a complete shock to everyone that I spoke to. And I felt that um, China's part in First World War should be should be perhaps told. So I wonder whether you could fill in some of our ignorance by starting with a very general background of what China was like before the Great War. Obviously, that is a huge question for a huge country, and we've only got a few minutes. Yes, China was in a very peculiar position. Um, in 1911, 
after 2000 years of imperial rule, um, you know, the traditional pyramid with the emperor at the top and a, a Confucian bureaucracy below him. In 1911, that was overthrown, the end of imperial China. And um, a new China was set up, a republic. Uh, and this was um, pretty much a, a dramatic change. I mean, people in China hadn't been prepared. They hadn't thought about setting up a republic. The, the 1911 rebellion started rather by mistake. Um, um, so ammunition went up and, and it, it started and it happened. But from so from the beginning of 1912, this is, I think, how close that is to the outbreak of the First World War, China had to establish a modern system of government, set up a parliament with um, a franchise, I think 10% of all males were um, entitled to vote, which is a much better number than were achieved in Japan or even India until the 1930s. So they had a parliament, they had to join all sorts of institutions, in, international institutions, international postal system, set up a legal system, for example, a completely different legal system without the emperor as the apex of power. Every single aspect of, as it were, modern government had to be established in a very short time, almost overnight. And China was still struggling with this very dramatic change in government when the world, the First World War broke out. And what is, I think, important is, you know, one of the first battles to be fought was fought actually on Chinese soil in the province of Shandong, um, where the Japanese decided to take over an old German concession. So, I mean, I suppose one should explain that um, China, as far as the outside world was concerned, was regarded as a bit of a joke. Um, many parts of it were, were considered to be spheres of influence for foreign powers. I mean, the British held, as it were, the Yangtze, the whole kind of area up the river. The French were there in the south, um, bordering Vietnam, and rather latecomers to um, imperial possessions in China, if you like, were the Germans, who only in the late 19th century very last years of the 19th century, established a German concession on the province of Shandong, um, on, a, on, on the coast. And so, and it was this place that the Japanese decided in September 1914, they decided that they would take the, Japan, the, the German concession. I think you've touched on it already. What was the nature of European and Japanese colonial involvement in China by 1914? And how did they view the Chinese people? What was their sort of perception of them in their, their own sort of hierarchies that they may have had on views of, on the world? In 1914, China was still regarded by the West and increasingly by Japan as a, as it were, a sort of colonial territory. Um, that, though no exact colonial um, setups were established, but the, the foreigners declared their spheres of interest. So you have the British thought that the whole of the Yangtze um, was a British area. The French had their areas. And in these areas, um, they really considered, you know, for, the, for example, the British were supposed, you know, only we can build railways in the Yangtze Delta area. And the French had their own railway system in the south. And anything that happened really had to be put through, as it were, the um, this these spheres of interest. Um, and the Japanese came rather late. If you think of Japan, Japan is a tiny island, very much not rich in resources, um, next to this enormous country, which the Japanese and indeed the Westerners could see was poorly governed. I mean, was really the, the, the Chinese parliament was barely in control. Um, and they were, as I said, trying desperately to establish a modern 
a modern state with all that that comprised, but were finding it very hard. There were lots of internal struggles. And so the Japanese looked at China and thought, well, you know, we can have everything. We can have their iron, their steel, their coal, all their the resources. And the Japanese definitely looked on China as being kind of, um, you know, a doormat that Japan could wipe its feet on. And the other foreign powers were not dissimilar. I mean, China was was there to be milked of what what could be got from it. Um, and there was considerable disdain for China's efforts at establishing a parliamentary setup and so on. Um, China and the Chinese people were considered sort of almost sort of infantile and um, not really worth dealing with as adults, but what people people who could be pushed around and their, as I say, their resources used as the foreigners wanted. I think you've pretty well covered question five. I will go on to question six, if that's all right. Unless you've got anything to add, I can certainly do question five and I will edit this bit out. No, I think, I mean, I, I think what, the, one of the few things that one might say is that um, the the way that the Western powers looked at China, which was to sort of slice it up into their spheres of influence, was slightly complicated by the arrival of Japan, which took very little notice of existing um, spheres of influence, but decided that it wanted really a kind of to establish a sort of protectorate over the whole of China. And this was complicated by the fact that, for example, the UK um, had a treaty with Japan, which had been signed at the beginning of the 20th century, um, the Anglo-Japanese alliance. Um, and the, if you look at the, the, the writings of, for example, the Sir John Jordan, who was the British, not ambassador, he didn't have ambassadorial status, but the British representative in Peking, he was terribly worried by the way that the Japanese were just muscling in on China without making any reference to its supposed ally, the UK. So there were tensions between the Western powers over China as well. So why did China opt to fight on the side of the Entente powers in 1917? It seems a very bizarre question, given that they they regarded China with such disdain. I think um, we have to look even earlier. China wanted to help the British very early on. Um, it was in, in, um, in September 1914, when it was clear that Japan was about to seize the ex-German um, areas in, in Shandong, was, was taking advantage of the fact that Britain and, 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 and Germany were at war. Um, Germany was therefore a bad thing. Japan was an ally of the British. The Japanese thought, we'll take the, Jap the, the German enclave there. And at that moment, um, Yuan Shikai, the president of China, offered the British, um, he wanted to offer them, send them 50,000 troops to defend Shandong um, and to take it back from the Germans. His idea was to take it from the Germans and basically re-establish it as Chinese territory. But he hadn't reckoned with the Japanese. The British turned this down, um, which was a bit of an insult to Yuan Shikai. So from the very, very beginning, um, any sort of sympathy um, with the Western powers was very much with the UK. I think it was partly due to the fact that Yuan Shikai, the president of China, was really on very good terms with Sir John Jordan, um, the British representative in Peking. In fact, there's a wonderful um, moment in, in John Jordan's memoirs where he notes with some horror that Yuan Shikai, who'd already invested in property in the UK, was thinking of buying a retirement home close to where Sir John Jordan lived so that they could carry on being friends, which rather alarms John Jordan. But anyway, it, I mean, I think very much there was no sim, there was no similar feeling about the Germans on, on the Chinese side. 
I mean, there were Germans in China, there were German representatives, and there were indeed these German colonies. But um, the, the, the Chinese were closer, in effect, to the British and obviously saw the British as being more likely to save China than the Germans were. So what was the nature of the Chinese commitment to the Allied cause during the war? Chinese kept trying to help. I think they were slightly unaware of what sort of neutrality meant. I mean, obviously, Yuan Shikai offering 50,000 troops in September 1914 was um, strictly against the official neutrality of China, and it wasn't taken up. But um, the, the Chinese constantly throughout the war offered help, but the most concrete and the most significant and really very, very important assistance was given when um, China was sent um, a, up to a, about 100,000, well, 140,000, sorry, the China sent 140,000 workers to the, the battlefront, to Europe. Um, this was a, the Chinese Labour Corps, which was um, started in 1915. Uh, it was recruited in two ways, partly by the French and partly by the British. Now, sending a Labour Corps is different from sending um, troops. So um, it's something that you can do at any time. And it was really an extension of the old system of coolie labour. Um, Britain had relied upon Chinese coolie labour to help in mines in South Africa. They'd been in, in um, Latin America in mining there and in building railroads across America. So the, the, the Labour Corps was proposed, but specifically to help with the war. The French recruited 40,000 um, Labour Corps members and the British recruited almost 100,000. And these workers were sent to France. In Those recruited by France were mainly put into factories and utilities, replacing men who had been taken off to, to serve. The British used them in a slightly different way, much closer actually to the actual war. Um, they, they served close to the lines. They uh, maintained tanks, they built railways, they dug trenches, they brought ammunition up to the front. They did almost everything that was needed to supply an army, um, bar actually fighting. But they were very close to um, battles in many cases, and, and quite a number of them were killed. Um, it was not an easy thing for the Chinese to go these many thousands of miles. Um, there was a, a, one ship was sunk by, um, by the Germans, um, and 543 labourers were lost on the, on the Athos. Um, and eventually the British started to send them a very long way across Canada, in fact, to Europe, um, in trains that were um, cut off from everyone else with the, all the blinds drawn, so that nobody knew in theory that you know thousands of Chinese were passing across Canada on their way to the war. But their service was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, there are moments when Winston Churchill um, said that he really felt that the war would have been lost but for the Chinese help. Because you have to think right at the very beginning of the war, so many people died in the battles at the very beginning of the war. There was a terrible shortage of manpower. And so every, every possible um, piece of help was, was, was needed. And the Chinese um, laborers who worked um, a seven day week often um, were well, very stalwart in what they did. And people who worked with them, like um, uh, if you look at the Museum of the Tank Corps and so on, people were terribly impressed with their strength and their willingness to um, accept this extraordinarily hard work. And they stayed, many of them, right through until 1919. And I think, I mean, as I say, Churchill did say at one point, you know, but for them pretty well, the war would have been lost. And what was the human cost of their involvement in the British war effort? Um, about 10,000 died 
some of illness um, and some because of military accidents. And in the the last year, in 1919, when they were clearing battlefields, um, there, there were lots of awful accidents with um, armaments as they were bring, you know, bringing them out of the fields and so on. So 10,000 died, um, which is a considerable number. You know, if you think of that, they're far from home. And as far as the Chinese are concerned, it's terribly important to be buried near your home where your family can look after your your spirit after death and bring you food and make offerings and so on. And so to die so many thousands of miles away with no one to look after your graves was a, a particular tragedy. So you write in your book that China was a betrayed ally. Why was this so? From the very beginning, from um, the beginning in 1914, when Yuan Shikai offers troops to help recover the German concessions in Shandong, the idea of the Chinese was this, that if they worked with the West, then maybe they could recover these old concessions, that the Germans were out, gone, finished, and therefore the German parts, the German-occupied parts of China could come back to China. Now, the Japanese preempted that by moving in immediately to take over the Japanese, the, the, the German concessions. So you have Japan in charge. And right the way through the rest of the war, China's aim was to get back the, the concessions and take them away now from Japan. Um, and they, they were never particularly promised anything, but um, I think they felt that, you know, it would be right would be on their side if they joined in and they would get um, a reward at the end of the war. Now, sadly, we know that actually even by the time China actually joins in, actually signs up with the Entente side in um, 1917, in the summer of 1917, by in February 1917, secret treaties had been concluded between the, the French and the British and, and the Russians and so on, which and the Japanese, giving the German concessions to Japan, ceding them back, not ever considering that China might get them back. So, so China actually joined um, with no hope, as it were, of getting what she wanted. And so at Versailles, um, Chinese sent two delegations, in fact, because China was in a confused political situation. But China didn't get anything that it wanted. It didn't get back its own territory, which had been seized by the Germans and then taken by the Japanese. And so you know, they, everything they'd hoped for was, was denied them. And Japan you know, emerged with um, considerable um, gain in the sense that Japan was um, exceeded sort of special interests in Manchuria. It got the Shandong German concessions and so on and various other parts. Um, of the world where Japan had seized land from Germany. So Japan is victorious. And what was the domestic political and social impact of China's involvement in the Great War? I think the, the, actually during the war, there was very little effect, really. I mean, China is an awful long way away from the, the, from the battlefields. Um, not much changed in China. I mean, the Chinese did seize um, German interests. They closed down German firms, they watched out for German shipping and that kind of thing. So they helped in a sort of small way, um, but not huge effect within China. Um, but it was as soon as the, the news of the Versailles Treaty came through and the fact that China had been denied um, what it wanted, that had an enormous impact. And there was an instant popular uprising, um, the May and the May the Fourth Movement. But in a sense, you can see the beginnings of communist China at that moment. Um, I think had China got what it wanted at Versailles, then the history of 
China in the in the 30s and 40s would have been very different. And how is how does China view the Great War and its involvement today? I mean, do those problems that you you, you indicated that happened in 1919 still resonate today in, in the modern sort of uh, political scene? Yes. If you look at the actual war, it's only fairly recently that the, there has been much celebration of China's participation through the China's Chinese Labour Corps. Um, for a long time, I think uh, the Chinese government felt that this was a slightly um, distasteful form of participation because it was so closely linked to coolie labour. This is, you know, cheap Chinese labour. And so it wasn't particularly celebrated. But um, recently, just in the last few years, there have been um, the construction of monuments and memorials and celebrations of these people who went out and um, did so gloriously serve in the First World War. So it, it's looked at very differently. That, that's very recent indeed. Um, before that, it was, as I say, a rather slightly kind of distasteful episode. Um, and But the, the celebrations are in China are very, very firm around the, the reaction to Versailles, the May the 4th movement of 1919, which really kind of, it, it really was a renaissance for China. This was the moment when many people, all intellectuals, all sort of educated people got together and thought, you know, we, we really have to remake China. We've got to make a new China. Um, they were really, they were infused with anger after Versailles and created new forms of literature, an absolute burgeoning and blossoming of publication and of societies and, and study and so on. It, 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 it really re reinvigorated China in a way that the 1911 revolution hadn't. And it, the Chinese Communist Party formed in 1921 very much as a result of these kinds of feelings. So China changes as a result of the First World War, but it's a result of the reaction to the First World War rather than participation in it. And my final question, Francis, is where can people learn more about your work and where can they get the book? Um, they can, oh, my work. Um, well, I've written various books, but which you can find. But the, the book mainly, um, there's a paperback now, um, so yeah, which you can buy for, I think, £12 from... Pen and Sword, um, Military Historians, um, 47 Church Street, Barnsley, South Yorkshire, S72AS. So easy. As I say, the paperback has just come out. Francis, thank you very much for your time. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time... <laughs>